0: Everybody, thank you for joining me for the Keto Endurance podcast. And I have the super cool Danny Vega here talking to me. And we're gonna have some pretty exciting conversations about rest, recovery, nutrition, and thinking long term. Well, let me let Danny say hi
1: and then we'll get <laughs> what's up. Let me just say that I'm really happy to be on with you. It was such a pleasure to meet you on the low carb cruise we instantly connected you and me and Maura, and of course with debbie because you were with debbie it was it was just awesome so i'm honored to be here i love having conversations with you so i'm really excited about this
0: yeah me too i i feel like i wish i could just talk to you and mara how do you say mara <laughs> i can't, i have so bad about her name but like you're just so nice and so fun <laughs> and so charismatic so if you see danny and mara
1: m- Okay. Here's, here's a, here's a cheat. I, I, I always tell people because I think what throws people off is the way we pronounce it since we're Cuban and our first language is Spanish. So we pronounce it Maura because that's how it's said in Spanish, but you can say it's basically Laura with an M it's, it's Mora. You can say Mora or you can say Maura. Like a lot of people can't roll their R. So you could say Maura, like, like basically turn the, uh, the R into a D that works for a lot of people. Or you can say Maura. It's, Whatever's most comfortable.
0: <laughs> more, more Yeah. Mara, I cannot roll my R's. And even though my family lives I have a lot of family who live in Mexico and Cool. And I go all the time, but I don't speak Spanish and I'm not good at, at rolling my R's. There are some people who just the way their brains work have a really hard time picking up a foreign language and I am one of those people. I'm not <laughs> proud of that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, also the, the older you are, when you try to pick up a new language, the harder it is. I think it's before the age of 13, we can really, we're like sponges and we can pick up new languages. It's interesting that when you're a little kid, you can pick up these new languages, but you, you don't have the ability to distinguish which language is which. So for instance, if we would have done this the right way, and we knew this ahead of time, but we still didn't do it. We would have chosen one person either me or Maura to always speak in Spanish and the other person to always speak in English. So it's like, they're able to, okay, I'm talking to mommy. It's time to talk in Spanish or vice versa, yeah. but it is. And, and this is why like my dad came to this country when he was 14 or 15. And this is why, you know, 50 years later, he still has a really, really thick accent because because of that reason right there that those patterns and whatever, the, whatever's happening in the brain, they're already well-established by the time you're yeah. 13.
0: It's sort of an interesting story about my sister. When she moved to Mexico, I think my niece was, she was in the sixth grade and my sister put her back. She did sixth grade in the United States and then they moved to Mexico. And then she repeated the sixth grade in Spanish and she had a tutor. And my niece was always correcting my sister's Spanish. And my sister had <laughs> a certain amount of Spanish. Because of that, people say... In, in Mexico say that my sister doesn't have an accent and my niece doesn't have an accent either, which is pretty remarkable since my sister had Spanish in school. We grew up in Southern Arizona and Southern New Mexico. So there were a lot of native speakers uh, growing up, but when they moved down there, they still had to learn more Spanish. My sister is pretty, she's pretty fluent. And uh, my niece obviously is, is very fluent. She's studying veterinary medicine down there. And actually this Friday, I'm driving down to San Carlos, Guaymas, Sonora, Mexico, and my son is going to visit a college there to find out the language requirements, and then he's going to Guadalajara to go to an intensive language school. That's cool. And then he's going to go to college in Guaymas. So they have a special program that a lot of people don't know about. In Mexico, they have a certain, there's a list of schools that have a student visa incentive program. So if you're a foreign student studying there, you have to take a language test to test your level of Spanish, but it's $50 a semester because the school is subsidized by the government. $50 a semester. And he was going to school at New Mexico State. And I'll tell you, it wasn't $50 a semester.
1: (laughs) I can guarantee that. Yeah, I bet. This is... This country has a, a serious university racket going on. Oh, um, yeah, it's so sad. Yeah,
0: yeah. So we're. I told Ethan he kept taking classes. He'd sign up. He's like, I don't know if this is what I want to do, and I don't want to commit to getting a student loan or having you know to pay so much for these classes. So he would sign up for classes and then drop right away, and then sign. He's like, I don't like these classes. Then I mean, sign up for classes and drop right away because he was like. You know, he went to a week of school and was like, that's a lot of money. I think it's like $3,000 a semester. So the idea of my niece's boyfriend's dad is actually the dean of the school. And I guess they were talking about it I'm like, oh, you can come to school here. Even without the incentive, the student visa, it's $150 a semester, which my niece is studying veterinary medicine down there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe somebody listening to this will find it useful and want to go to school in Mexico. You can message me and I can send you the list of schools and then you just take your language test, you have to get apply for the school, get accepted and then you go to the Mexican embassy in the United States and you get your student visa and then you go to school.
1: That is pretty cool, man. I love I I love listening to these different ideas that a lot of people don't consider because It makes the world so much bigger and people just don't realize how awesome of a life they can live if they just are open to new ideas and they let go of one example is this whole idea that this country is the safest country in the world and you go to another country and you're going to get robbed and that is such BS. You know, I have so many friends who are expats living in different countries and don't get me wrong. It's probably not something that I would do because I think that this country provides me the most freedom. I have financial security. I know when I put my money in a bank, it's going to be, it's going to stay there. But at the same time, people all over the world are humans and we we lose that human contact and it makes it so much easier to be cruel or to just not understand a different culture because you, you, you lose that humanity. And then you, you, you know, you just buy into all this stuff that you're told that, you know, you go to a different country and things are going to be difficult for you or, or unsafe. And it's just not true.
0: Yeah. I mean, in every place, I mean, just now they've had shootings in El Paso, which I'm from southern New Mexico. El Paso is not that far away. I know exactly where that mall is. My son was at New Mexico State. He just got yeah. home um, last week and he, a friend of his has relatives who were killed in that shooting. So oh that's how gosh. close to home it hits. And then I agree with you. The more we meet people, especially meet people from other cultures and travel and visit places, that we are going to end up with a different perspective that's not so myopic.
1: Yes. Yes. That's that's our goal for our kids. That's one of our biggest goals. And it's interesting. It's kind of ironic because, you know, we're unschoolers. So, you know, we're they're not in the school system. And a lot of the time, the first thing that you hear is, well, they're going to be sheltered. And it's quite the opposite with us. We want them to see more of the world. If they're traveling and they're going to all these different cultures, when they are unfortunate enough to, you know, listen to the news or or, or engage in conversations with people who consume all this media, they're just going to be like looking at them like they have three heads. Like, what are you talking about? I was just there. Those people are not like that. That's not true, you know. And so that is so important to us. You know, it, we want our sons to be, of course, men of virtue, but we want them to also. Not be ignorant and not have these weird ideas that that are not founded,
0: right? Well, ideas that just are based on things that are not verifiable.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes.
0: You know, saying uh, you know one of the big things is like this idea that some foreign person has taken your job or is taking <laughs> jobs. So let's say you were at a factory, and the factory in the town you were at closed. Did it close because someone took that job or did it close because technology got better and there was a lot of different automation and maybe some of the factories did move to another country, but that, that's providing jobs in the other country, Not nobody is taking your actual job that you have right now. Another thing that sort of irritates me about, we're talking, this is a keto endurance pod, <laughs> <laughs> but, but something that that irritates me when people complain about where the money goes in our in our federal budget do you ever read the budget report i mean you can look and see where the budget goes and i'll tell you the military industrial complex oh, it's yeah. a big chunk of money that they i really think that they don't need near that much money because we, well, we-
1: Sorry, Mm -hmm. sorry, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. I get so fired
0: up about this. (laughs) I know, me too. I'm like, we spend more money on the 42 cents, I believe. It's 40 something cents out of every dollar paid in taxes goes to the military industrial complex. And it's more than the seven next countries combined, how much they spend on their military budget that we spend on our military budget. And really, do, is that money going to something useful? I would I would venture to say no.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if we've spoken about this in the past, but Maude and I were huge Ron Paul supporters. We, we were volunteered for two campaigns of his. And one of the things he used to say was that, all I want to do is roll back our spending to how it was in the Clinton administration. If you talk to anybody, they'll be like, that seems, that seems reasonable. Nobody's talking about that. Everyone's talking about limiting the increases. Forget about cutting, just holding back on the percentage that we increase every year because it's a given that we're going to increase every single year. And going back to the whole jobs thing, when it comes to uh, a job going overseas or production going overseas, the consumer wins because that savings is passed on to us. And it's upon us to be innovative and to find new skills. Sometimes you find yourself in a, in a job that has unfortunately become obsolete. And you know, I don't think it's the responsibility of society to help you. Unfortunately, that's the world that we live in. You have to continue to provide value and learn new skills and distinguish yourself. I like having that freedom. And I think it's important to have that freedom. And I don't think we should try to guarantee outcomes. We should just make sure that we have good opportunities, freedom and all that and I'm sorry that we got on the soapbox but we both got a little bit fired up but it, it just, yeah. it's true it's true
0: well that and I think that going back on the soapbox like our country <laughs> does need infrastructure No, you know I like having paved roads without potholes and street lights and those public services I'm sure some of the money spent could be spent on making our infrastructure a little better, since especially public roads. The town we were in was in Big Bear, California. I went to Big Bear for my 50th birthday, and I did the 50th Still, still blown
1: away by this, by the way. I'm still blown away that you, when you turned 50, it was last week, right?
0: Yeah, well, August 1st, I would turn 50.
1: Yeah, I was just, that's, that's amazing. You do not, you had me fooled.
0: Yeah, well, I do. I, I have a lot of people fold. Nobody thinks I'm <laughs> so It's not like uh, people are shocked when I they say I have a, I tell them I have a 25-year-old and a 21-year-old. They're like, what? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: The, which is nice. It's nice. It's keto, low-carb, makes That's you right. young. I would even be looking younger if I would train right. So I, <laughs> <laughs> if I would, uh, uh, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But it's one of the things they have the lake there, the, the dam was built by the Civil Conservation Corps, which was really what, you know, helped the United States out of the Great Depression was Roosevelt's implementing all these public work programs. And so it's nice that like, oh, we still have this dam and this beautiful lake and a nice area that has provided a beautiful resource for the United States that it would be nice if we, we would invest in some of that instead of invest in an extra missile or an extra F-15, you know, <laughs> whatever. So, but aside from that, so we're going to talk, Danny and I were talking a little bit about overtraining or undertraining, something I was discussing with him right before the call. I had an appointment with Dr. Nally. A lot of folks who listen to this know Dr. Nally. He's written a keto book on obviously keto nutrition. And I have been super tired lately so tired. And, um, I knew probably I had messed up my hormones because I am a cyclist. I I do endurance sports training and I like to ride with my friends and I sometimes ride at too high of a heart rate that I would even recommend for my clients because I'm too busy talking instead of focusing on my heart rate, you know? And I knew because how tired I was that my hormones were tanking. Some of it's my age and granted, like keto doesn't fix everything. Your hormones are still going to change the older you get. So I went and and saw him and he's like, yeah, I think you've just blown through all your hormones with your training. The harder you train, you just, the actual numbers are on the counter. But I mean, I was low on progesterone, low on
1: estrogen. Were you you zeroed out on your cortisol? Was it really elevated or was it to the point where it just was like, all right, we're done. We're not going to do it anymore. Because that's yeah, what
0: happened to Maura. Yeah, it's like, we're done. There's no, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we're done. <laughs> no, there is yeah. nothing. You know, I, I have a Facebook group where, you know, all these people are posting questions. They're like, oh, I switched to keto, but blah, 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 blah. And they're all there. They want a, a diet answer to their question. And the, the answer is not your diet. The answer is how you train and how you recover. Yes. I felt like saying you have to slow. Well, I do say this. I'm like, you have to slow down. It's not your diet. I had a you know, a client who had hired me just for nutrition and I didn't have access to his training files. And I said, I need to see your training files. So he he finally shared them with me. And I was like, you know, all of your little nutrition combos, because he was fading at the end of the, the run, he said, it has nothing to do with. It's nothing to do with your diet. It's how you're training. You got to slow down. And that's what people don't want to slow down.
1: That's No, they, they don't. They don't. It's so true there. I think a lot of it is there's so many things working against people nowadays because they want quick results. They're used to quick results in a lot of things in life because of how convenient everything is nowadays. And that's exacerbated by this social media world that we live in, where it just makes it so easy to find yourself comparing yourself to others and trying to keep up always. And that leads to so many issues. And people want to say, they, they, they want to say, why can't I do what that person's doing? I want to do what that person's doing right now because I, you know, I'm not cutting it or whatever it is. And unfortunately, that's where they get in trouble. They don't match their training to their diet. And you're right. It's, the diet's good. You know, The diet's fine if you're training the right way. If you start doing different things with your training, and especially if you're competitive, then you do need to look at ways to fuel your diet. But if you're just someone who wants to get in shape and wants to burn fat and wants to be healthy, you know, eating a strict ketogenic diet will be just fine as long as you manage your training, your rest, your time under tension. This goes for the lifting side as well as the conditioning side.
0: Right. Make sure you have adequate recovery. I think yes. something that I think people discount is... How much stress, external factors like either family stress or work stress, any of that plays a role in that pool of stress that you have to deal with. So Joe Frill, who I'm a big fan of, written numerous books on the Training Bible series is what he's written. And he talked about uh, one of his clients, all of a sudden he has um, his cardiac drift. So it's like you want your heart rate and your pace or your heart rate and power to be around, you know, to match. Well, his heart rate went up, but his pace, you know, power did not. So that's, you know, drift. And he had asked the guy like, what was going on? Because this guy had been pretty solid and tell them, well, his wife had asked for divorce. Well, that's (laughs) going, (laughs) you're like, okay, that's going to have an effect on how your training sessions are going to go. Those external factors will affect you. Like if your boss says, hey, we have this new project and you have this huge deadline. At that point, you know, you stayed up late to work on the deadline. You're stressed out about how it's going to turn out, how it's going to look. And then you have your training for, you know, people training for an Ironman are nuts. They will not miss a workout <laughs> for anything. And so then you have a like a 80 mile bike ride the next day, your quality of that bike ride is not going to be very good because of all these other external factors. And you're probably better off, you know, either like doing 80 miles, but cutting the intensity or cutting the distance or something, making an adjustment in your training schedule. But people don't want to do that. They're like, I want to get my paper or my project done at work. And then I want to get you my bike ride and I'm just going to get five hours of sleep instead of eight.
1: And, Oof, um, and then they
0: gets sick. <laughs>
1: so. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I love everything that you're saying. And it reminds me of what you said at the beginning, where we're talking about this long-term mentality where you're, you're realizing and you're just remembering, okay, who am I? I'm, I'm a person who has decided that this is my way of life going forward. So, let me just pay attention to what's going on. My number one priority is to finish this project. I have to scale back on this other stuff. I have to. I can't do right. them both. One of the books that I really love, that you know, it's just one of those well written, very accessible books by Brad Kearns, and I know Mark Sisson was part of it, is Primal Endurance. And and they spoke about the math method, which is, you know, Phil Maffetone yeah, I'm a popularized big fan it. Of Dr. Maffetone. Yes.
0: I mean, that's his, you know, Dr. Maffetone, Maximum Aerobic Function. Yes. He created it. It's not even popularized it like it was his thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. He created it and, and yeah. it was popular. You know, it's hard, I'm sure, even for you and for me, people who know this, it's hard for us to even do it because, again, it's so hard to slow down. And, you know, for anyone who doesn't understand it, it's just you take 180 and you subtract your age, and that's your maximum aerobic heart rate. And for Unless me,
0: or recovering, then you ma- uh, subtract 5 or 10, depending on that. So it ends up yes. being, if you have allergies and you're subtracting 5, one it ends up being pretty, so 180 minus 50, like my maximum aerobic function heart rate is 130, but right now, because I have hormone problems, should be 125. No, yeah. I should go over that. And I'll tell you today, uh, before we went on uh, for this call i rode my bike this morning and i'll tell you my heart rate did not average or my max was not 125 it was about yeah. 40 because about i was 40. because i was chatting with my friends and that's 100% not what you're supposed to do
1: yeah I, I know that a mutual friend of ours peter defty has spoken about how ketogenic athletes may have like some leeway for 10 beats higher because apparent, I, I don't know why, I haven't read why he wrote about it, but my guess would be, we have a little bit elevated cortisol. It's just part of, you know, right. we, we our, our cortisol is a little bit elevated. So our heart rate may actually be on average a little bit faster at times. And so you do have that leeway. You know, for me, it's 142 beats a minute. And, you know, I walked home yesterday from the gym. I do this, you know, several times a week. It's a three mile walk. And I was averaging about, 115 to 125 beats a minute and like a 16 and a half minute mile, just walking. And as I got like five minutes away from my house, the heat was so bad that I was really getting uncomfortable. And I checked my, my Garmin watch and this is, you know, Garmin watch is probably five beats slower than what a chest strap would give you because it's just not as accurate. Right. Um, you
0: know, the, with the sensors on
1: your wrist. Yep. Yeah. It's on your wrist. So it's not as accurate. I've, I've checked it before. And I was up to 155 as I was getting close to the house and I was like, this makes a ton of sense, you know, and, and I was only there for a few minutes, but the problem is that most people, it's so backwards, you know, like average Joe is spending, let's say 50% of their time in this black hole that, that Brad Kearns, you know, calls it right. where it's in that area in between your maximum aerobic heart rate and your anaerobic threshold. And the, the elite runners are sp- an elite athletes are, are spending 80 to 90% of their time in their cardiovascular or their aerobic zone. And then they're spending the other 15 to 20% doing, you know, hard stuff, speed work and and intervals and all that. And they do so much better because they're training the right way and they're already athletically and genetically gifted. So it's just kind of like the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. But hopefully with what we say, people will learn and they'll incorporate this into their training.
0: It's called polarized training. Polarized means that it's, you're staying at the polar ends, the high end, 20% high intensity, 80% low intensity. But Dr. Maffetone, I mean, and they didn't really include it so much in that book with Brad Kearns and um, Mark Sisson is that he does talk about well-trained athletes being able to bump up their training. And what I do with my athletes is we follow part of the season Maphitone method and then we switch over to threshold training. So we nice. do heart rate zones from one to five. And it depends on the base, you know, when they're in base building or base phase of training, then it's all Maphitone, And then we switch over to threshold whenever we're building. And so threshold training is more when you're, your training's going to match the course that you're Racing on, so you're going to do race pace. Let's say I had a, a an athlete who is training for the Alps. So I I use this program called Best Bike Split, where you can upload the person's bike information, their weight, their functional threshold power, and um, you can upload the course, and it will give them an estimate of where they're going, their time is going to be, and it's scary accurate. It's so amazing.
1: That's cool.
0: Yeah, It is so cool. They have a a program that's sort of similar um, for the run, but it's not the run part is not as accurate and they don't really promote the run. There's a link that they gave us because I'm a training peaks coach and I just have it saved on my bar that you could, they don't have as many races and you can't upload a course to the run part, but it will give you a really very accurate estimate of What to do, and then if you have time goals, specific time goals, you can train for that. You you need to hold so many watts of power at you know this body weight on this bicycle to be able to meet that goal. Pretty
1: fabulous. That's that's cool. I like it.
0: Yeah, it's so fun. So whenever we do the build phase, the training sessions are going to look like the course, and then you're going to still have recovery rides and some you know intense intervals depending on what you're specifically training for. You know, talking about matching the nutrition to your training. When I work with athletes, and I imagine you do too, is that it depends on your goals for one, how metabolically healthy you are. But somebody who's metabolically healthy who has some really strict, you know, time goals, we're still gonna add in some carbs. Sorry, I'm going back to what you were saying about about adding the 10 beats. Dr. Maffetone does say that if you are a well-adapted athlete, you have not been sick in one year. And you've been training for, I don't remember if it's five years, um, steady training for five years or consistent training in five years, you can add 10. So that's not only a Peter Defty thing. That's a... Oh, cool. ...tone
1: thing. My only exposure to it is through Primal Endurance. So I haven't actually read the, the primary source right. stuff.
0: There are some stuff that they get a little wrong in that primal endurance book. <laughs> so the, uh, that was one of the things. One of the things is the timing, the carbohydrates. You know, carbohydrates, you want ideally your body to be able to produce as much ATP as possible. And if you have low fasting insulin, you're very insulin sensitive and you start with burning fat. So you get the, your body's burning fat and using ketones. You know, fatty acids and ketones. If you add in some carbs, you just have added to your fuel source, and you're able to produce more ATP. You're just going to be faster. So I know Jimmy had posted something about spiking. You <laughs> can will spike your blood sugar, and I, I didn't comment, but I felt like saying, you know, it depends on what your goals are and who you are. If you have insulin resistance adding carbohydrates are not going to benefit you because your body is too resistant to you know, using them. You're probably not going to feel very good using them and then it may trigger a food addiction problem afterwards or sugar consume a lot of sugar. But if you're an insulin sensitive person and you're trying to qualify for Boston, hell yeah, you want to use carbohydrates and you don't care that they're spiking your blood sugar because your body's going to use the sugar.
1: Yeah. I get frustrated when things like this happen because I know that when I say things that I have a platform and it's going to invite criticism and things like that. But my only problem is that from the very beginning, you know, this happened when I kind of changed my mind a few years back on protein, where I used to be like, you know, you don't need that much protein. And then I realized that for me, I, you could put me on any diet and, and I'm going to do well for at least a time period because I'm just very metabolically flexible. I've been training for over 25 years, consistently with no more than a week, maybe two weeks off at a time, and those were usually like scheduled weeks off after a powerlifting meet or something like that. So you know, I, I'm very metabolically flexible, and I'm my metabolic health is good. But I feel like I've I've said this from the beginning. I'm always giving context, and it's part of my whole goal is to get people to think about these things and apply them to themselves and their, their own situations. And so when when people say things like that. It just, it bothers me because I'm like, I don't want you to give me any credit for talking about these things and, and, and being so in depth, but at least don't take it away. You know, like don't take away the fact that I've always given that context. And and so people asked me over and over so many people, specific situations, would this be good for me? Well, what's your situation? No, that that would actually probably wouldn't be good for you. you know. And, and some people where like, my runs have been bad or, or something like that. Would this be good for me? And then I said, you know, have you ever looked at, you know, maximum aerobic function training? Because that alone could get you to burn more fat and, and get you to be much more efficient, just well, well fueled for your training. And, you know, I, I've always said that. So, I, you know, everything that I say, it's not for everyone. And a lot of the time I say, look, this is what works for me. I draw lines in the sand sometimes where I say, you know, non-negotiable for me. And I know that those are the times where it's gonna get a little dicey. You know, like just the other day when I posted something about non caloric sweeteners, and of course everybody was coming out of the woodwork saying, Well, what about this? What about that? Well, that doesn't work for me. And and you know, sometimes I get it. Like a mom who has a child with a neurological disorder who can't afford to give them a little bit of sugar with whatever recipe they made them or something, they've really gotta keep those ketones high. So my child is already on a very restrictive diet. I don't wanna you know, restricting that much, I'm going to give them some treats with stevia in him. That I understand. But if it's someone who says, I can't, you know, have my coffee without it being sweetened, I'm going to say, get out of here. You know? Yes.
0: You're spoiled. You can't. Yeah. Have yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, that's the thing is like, for one, we're all on our own path and the choices that people make, that's their choice. So if you, if you feel like you can't, drink your coffee without sweetener, you're making one that choice and realize, I mean, I don't know what your context with a sweetener is, but for me, and if you're consuming artificial sweeteners, you're going to crave sweet things.
1: Yes, that's a big one for a lot of people. We saw that with our boys. It was funny to see our boys' taste buds change and their palate change. Because at the beginning, when they really started to get strict with keto and when we, we completely said, you know what? everything's out of the house. And this was back in 2017, in August of 2017, because they were always paleo, keto-ish. But then there was the occasional drive-through or the occasional like we vacillated on certain things. And when we finally did, I offered them a Lily's chocolate bar and they didn't like it. And then within a few months, they loved the Lily's chocolate bar and they'd eat the whole thing and and it's full of erythritol and they would just be farting all over the place. And they would always want snacks and they want more and more and more. And then when we said, you know what? No, let's get rid of that. Let's give them some fruit. If we make a recipe, we love Allie Miller. We use her recipes. And sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll do a recipe like the other day we made her keto peanut butter blondies and people on Facebook were commenting, I didn't know Allie wasn't keto or that's not keto. I subbed this for this and this. And, you know, that drives people like Allie crazy because she's like, I made this recipe so that you wouldn't put the chemical poop storm in your, in your recipe. And you know, you're know you missing the point, especially if it's a, a sweet recipe, because a sweet recipe is something that you shouldn't be eating all the time. It's, it's an indulgence. That's what she right. calls them. And I love that term because an indulgence happens just like a treat. Because my, my sons started catching on to the word treat. And they're like, can we have a treat? Can we have a treat? I'm like, well, it's not a treat if you're having it every day. That's not a treat. A treat is right. an occasional thing. <laughs> so there's, I get a little bit fatigued with the keto community because, you know, it's easier for me coming from a paleo background back in you know, 2011 to deal with people who are paleo and maybe not comfortable with keto because at least they have the food quality piece down. Like they know it's not good to consume all this fake stuff. They know that we should try to consume real food in the world that we live in, the realest food that we can get, you know, because most of it is, is going to be altered the, from the way it used to be. But at least, Do what you can with what you have. Get rid of all the stuff that's going to be extra. Like, look at the stuff that you use every day. Don't put Stevia in your coffee or erythritol in your coffee every day. Don't use plastic. Don't use personal cleaning products with fragrances. All these things, those are things that that you can, they're low-hanging fruit that you can get rid of. And then, of course, as you get better, I would expect, at least for me, I expect of myself and of my wife and of my kids to always try to get a little bit better. And when we share guys, we did all of these, these recipes the first year of keto, we understand, but we want you to learn from our mistakes so that you don't have to go through it, you know, because then you, you, you're a year into your ketogenic journey. You may have lost some weight at, at first. And I've, I've seen this so much with clients of mine. And another thing that they do is they'll always be focusing on this, this ratio, like maintaining this perfect ratio where they're adding all this extra fat to their, their meals And that works at the beginning very well because number one, it helps you with satiety. It helps you as you're kind of having these carb withdrawals. It also gives you, like I always say, it gives you more raw material for ketone production because your liver is going to produce the ketones. But at the beginning, your ketones, you're going to pee most of them out. So then as you get better and more efficient at using those ketones, it would make sense. And sometimes it takes six months sometimes it takes a year. For me, it took over a year. When I started to see that I would get regular DEXA scans and my visceral fat went to zero, I have zero visceral fat. But then I noticed that I gained a little bit of subcutaneous fat, which for health reasons is not bad at all. You know, it's healthy fat, but for aesthetic reasons, you know, I'd rather be leaner and I cut some fat out and I felt better. And I have clients that, you know, they come from a metabolic, metabolically disordered background and they, they got their A1C down in the first several months. And then now they're a year or two years in and they're like, my A1C's back up. What's going on? Well, there's a lot of things that could be happening. And, and one of them is this idea that, I don't know if you listened to Amy's presentation on the, on the low carb cruise, the, yeah. the personal fat threshold. I yeah. think it's brilliant. And I think it's another thing that we need to pay attention to is this idea that you know if you are maxed out and your your fat cells are replete with energy, it doesn't matter if you're putting in extra carbs or extra fat, extra fat could also cause insulin resistance because the cell is saying, Hey, I'm good. I am full. And it's going to spit it right back out into the blood. And this happens with people with insulin resistance. You listen to Dr. Naaman. Ted Naaman talks about this. He helps his patients improve insulin sensitivity by decreasing their fat. So there's all these things that can happen. And we just got to pay attention and, and listen to all the different ideas. Like there's different ideas about satiety. Some say it's nutrient density, some say it's protein, some say it's fat, you know, and all of them are right to some extent depending on, you know, your bioindividuality. You know, you may be, for instance, me, I may not experience satiety with fat because I have blown past satiety so often in my life because people don't understand the amount of eating that needs to happen to grow muscle and, you know, from my high school years past my college years, I was jamming food into my throat and now I expect myself to have perfectly clear hunger signals and it's taken a while to get there. And so I find also that when I change things up, I get this cool, refreshing way to experience satiety in a different way. Like on my carb up days, my fat is really low. It's like 85 to hundred grams, but I'm getting more volume. in, so I'm like, Oh, after a meal, I'm like, man, I'm full. Cause I got more volume. And so I'm getting that mechanical stretch, whereas usually I don't rely on that mechanism to give me satiety because my meals are so dense. I mean, you look at my plate, well, my plates are different because my plates are gonna be lots of food no matter what. But relatively speaking, I can eat a bigger plate with more food every now and then. And I kind of think that's cool, you know? So I don't know, there's a lot of lot of stuff, but I think if people are just paying attention and trying to pick up what's useful and throw away what's not and experimenting and having the knowledge beforehand that if this doesn't work, you still win because you want, you, you, you learn something. And that's right. a good thing.
0: Right. I really like what you're saying about, you know, listening, changing things up and listening to your body. I'm a big person into listening to your body and realizing that there's a big difference in people's genetics. And I think, you know, listening to your talk, one of the things that I think is concerning about the keto and carnivore community is like the people are thinking everybody needs to eat this way. Well, yep. I am married to a man who's six foot seven. My husband's very tall. He weighs <laughs> 170 pounds. Whoa. <laughs> so skinny. And he eats whatever he wants. I mean, I try to get a, I'm like, eat real food choices, but he... He eats a lot of carbohydrates and he's, you know, his blood tests are come out good. His A1C is low. I mean, he's a healthy person. So just to assume that something that works for me or something that works for you is going to work for somebody else, we can't make those assumptions because we all have different biologies, different genetic backgrounds, all kinds of different factors that go into it. Obviously I am very much against a vegan diet for a lot of reasons, but there are people who thrive on a vegan diet. So, you know, who am I to say that, you know, if you feel good eating that way and you have good health and then go for it, but just recognize your health may decline later. I mean, with anything,
1: yeah, Uh, you have to uh, adapt and adjust. You do. And every single diet, There's always a risk for micronutrient deficiencies and they never happen right away. They happen over time. And so being aware of this gives you, it it empowers you because it's like, okay, fine. That's not working now. Don't be angry that you can't eat the way so-and-so eats because you're different. And so maybe for now, especially I have clients and part of what I do on my initial consult is I ask them, are you currently tracking? How are you currently eating? Because some people come to me and they're following a totally different diet that, that even they may have thought was keto, but it's this, this really low fat, low carb diet. And now I, it's my job to help them get their increase, their, their BMR and their RMR by bringing some calories back in. But I have to start where they are. I can't just bring them to where I want them to be. I have to bring them there slowly and knowing the fact that maybe they won't end up at that 70% or 75% fat. Maybe they, maybe they'll do well with 65% fat or 60% fat, you know? So all of these things are, you know, is why I tell people you can do this on your own. There's so much good information. You just have to pick the sources that you trust and see what they're saying, follow what they're saying. and, And if it doesn't work, then find another source, or, you know, it may be beneficial to hire a coach for three to four months, and then wean yourself off of them and go on your own. And and I always love that when people hire me and it's it, it, it comes to that point where you can tell we've finished our journey. Either you're going to go on your own and do your own thing, or I have a lot of people who are coaches who are trying to learn how I coach so that they, they could do it with their clients. I don't own this. Nobody owns it. So yeah, I'd love to help you. I'd love for more people to be taking this into their own hands. It's It's always been my goal. Like I had, a co-worker when I was the the head strength coach for VCU basketball, who was about 30 pounds overweight. He was an assistant coach uh, at VCU. And we just hit it off right from the beginning because he was also originally from Miami, Cuban like me. And he's like, I want you to help me, man. Help me with my diet. Help me with my training. And if you approach me in a way like, help me, just tell me what to do. Write something down and I'll do it. I'm going to be like, here's your workout and throw it at him and be gone. You know? But if there's someone who's genuinely interested in learning, I don't care how inconvenient it is. I'm hardwired to help you. Like I would be, you know, Mind you, I was single at the time and I was still drinking alcohol. So I'd be out at a bar uh, (laughs) like eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. And he'd call me and he'd be like, okay, I'm in Missouri in a, you know, some podunk town recruiting to see, you know, these players here, these are my three restaurant options, you know, help me understand. What to look for on the menu, what should be a smart choice. And I'd always pick up the phone and I'd always help them because if you're genuinely interested in learning and, and applying this stuff, I'm like your genie in a bottle. You know, I'll, I'll help you and I'll do anything for you.
0: I think that it's important too, as a coach for me, those questions are important for me because I forget that people don't know things because once it's yeah. in my head, I think it's common knowledge. You know? yep. Like, I was
1: just thinking about that. I was just thinking about that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm Anthony not- J, my good friend, he's the, the plastic and you know, estrogen expert. And I was just thinking as I left Starbucks today, I was like, you know, it's interesting, like we feel like we've put that to bed, right? Because we live in this small community that we feel like once we cover something, it's time to move on. But we forget that there's so many people who still don't know this. Like, would it be beneficial to totally just assume that no one knows anything and do a whole new podcast episode with him so they can understand why plastics are bad, blah, 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 all those things. Because it's true. We, we assume that people are going to remember just because we've said it a hundred times, they may have not know who you are. They may have just stumbled across your page, all those things.
0: Yes, I agree a hundred percent. And I don't know how long, many years you've been in this keto. Uh,
1: it's been three for me, June of, of 2016. So it's just a, a little over three years.
0: So I've been doing keto, well, paleo, and then low carb paleo, keto paleo, and carnivore for ten years. Wow! So I, so I feel like I think most of the stuff is common knowledge, and then I am flabbergasted when people ask questions, and I'm like, "Really? You? That's a question." But that's because even though I am not, I don't always follow a hundred percent keto carnivore. I was at, Tour Big Bear for my birthday. I did a 50 mile ride and they did not have, they're supposed to have ribs on the course and they did not have them. And <laughs> I ate bacon and strawberries. That was my fuel for the course. And then my husband- Sounds I, amazing. Yeah, it was pretty good. And they didn't have the hard boiled eggs, which was a very, very irritating. And then <laughs> I, after I was done, my husband and I went out to eat and they brought out chips and salsa and I was starving. And I did <laughs> eat chips and salsa. So I was like, so I don't follow everything 110%, but that's like the context. You know, I had just finished uh, four and a half hours climbing 4,000 feet on my bicycle. That yeah, it was was a (laughs) tough ride, especially, you know, what we were talking about hormones, um, not having optimal hormones for that. And um, I tried, actually, I did a pretty decent job of keeping my heart rate down, which was one of my goals. But still makes you hungry when you're done, and then I went back to full keto after that. But that's just like realizing everything's not shot just because I had, you know, a few chips and salsa.
1: And then oh, I yeah, and that's another one that I get. I get so many people that you know I feel for them because they they'll DM me and they'll say, "What do I do? I just I you know I fell off the wagon this weekend. I fell off hard. You know I, I feel terrible about myself. Like they're making like." you know ethical judgments on themselves and moral judgments on themselves they're a bad person because they were weak and they and they made a poor decision it's just a bad decision and so they're like what do I what should I do should I fast should I I'm like dude don't fast don't try to overcorrect just get back on the horse and get back to being on your plan because if you start going and doing these extremes you're going to notice that like if you look at it like a pendulum that pendulum is going to start wildly swinging from left to right from one extreme to the other. And you're never going to be balanced in that flow state that you should be just from building healthy habits and making good decisions all the time. And if you do make a mistake, okay, fine. What did you learn from it? See what you see, what examined that? Why did you eat that? What, what was the underlying reason? Well, I realized that, you know, I'm a stress eater because I am, you know, I was such a stress eater. Today's the one year anniversary of Dean being hit by the car. So I, specifically remember in that period i was still working at my old job i was a medical device rep for 11 years and i was still working at my old job and i took two week vacation because maura was going to do all of desmond's homeschool and his busy schedule because they're never home which is you know funny because homeschool that's why homeschool is such a poor term because they're never home and she's like i don't want desmond to pay for the fact that Dean has to be home and has to recover. So I'm going to take care of Desmond and you stay with Dean. And I stayed with Dean at home and I would eat like crazy. I was stress eating. But at the same time, my relationship with my youngest son is so important to me because he's so picky and he's, you know, when he loves you, you really feel a sense of accomplishment because he's very picky and he's very smart and he's Mauda's son because he's He is very intuitive. He understands like your motivations when you speak. He's not, those things don't go over his head. And so I did stress eat a ton, but at the same time, my relationship with my son got so much better in that time period, lasting, you know, changes that to this day, when he wakes up now, I'm the one who he calls for always. And if Maura goes, he doesn't want her. He wants me. So, you know, I say that to say that I knew that in that season I was going to overeat now granted my my overeating is always within a ketogenic framework so I never like cheat with carbs so I I'll do you know fat bombs and you know these keto treats that end up having me at 5000 calories or more something crazy mm-hmm. um you know Mato will be like what then you just ate all the fat bombs you made you realize you filled that glass cup with oil And you, you know, you put it into these molds and you ate all of that. That's what you just did. You just ate a few cups of oil, you know, (laughs) and obviously it would lead to, you know, issues with the bathroom the next day and not feeling great. But at the same time, you know, I, I guess in my mind, I was like, you know, I'm not messing myself up, but at the same time I'm human and I struggle with binge eating even still to this day, some days I'm just like, all right, it's going down today. I mean, it's, you know, I used to call them, um, what did I call them? Uh, controlled demolition, <laughs> a controlled demolition today. Like, uh, you know, and maybe it's my hormones telling you something. Maybe it's, you know, someone said, cause we have our keto muscle intelligence program and someone said today in our private group, like the other day I tried to stick to Danny's meal plan, but the other day I just ate a ton. I felt like I was extra hungry. And if you're someone who's been following a ketogenic diet for a while, chances are your hunger signals are going to be real. And so if your body's telling you to eat more, then definitely eat more because it's probably something's missing and your body's telling you give me some more energy so I can fix this, you know?
0: Yes. And I think especially when you're training. You know, when you're yeah. talking about, you know, we're discussing stress and, and just training for anything lifting or endurance sports training, when you're hungry and you you are following a ketogenic diet, and you're hungry, you probably need some more fuel. And I can tell you as one of the reasons my hormones are so sort of wacky is I really messed them up when I, before I switched to low carb keto, I was still following the high carb, low fat diet recommended to endurance athletes. And I was training for Ironman Arizona and trying to do it eating like 12 to 1500 calories a day. And wow. um, what it did was That's it brutal. just. Yeah. And it it ate away all my hormones. And so now it's, you know, I think our bodies are super complex. And once you dig yourself in a pretty big hole, sometimes those things, those pathways, your body has memory, like muscle memory, nerve system memory, that that's how my body memorizes to deal with stress. And I'm still, I still have a problem with You know, when I'm training hard and I am hungry, like I don't want to eat because I'm like, well, if I'm hungry, then maybe I'm burning fat. But what I do is just burn through my hormones. I still have really some mental issues and issues with food and training. But I think we are a a product of our past environment. And you add more stress and stress to the environment. And then you add training stress that your body's responding in a lot of ways that you may not understand, but those signals are telling you something.
1: That's right. That's right. And let's listen to them. That's good. That's a good thing. Uh, again, it goes back to this idea. Like for me, I just, for some reason, was reminded of why I love paleo and Weston A. Price and all of those you know, related approaches because they really do focus on Let's get back to nature. Let's, let's get away from this. And I'm, I'm also fresh off of last night. I watched Denny Tortorich's doc- documentary. Did you get oh,
0: to see that? that? Was so, yes, it was so awesome. And yes. the whole part where they cut off the guy's foot, I know oh. I left it in there to really send it home. Like, you know, this is what's going to happen to you if you continue eating this way, but I, I rented it off of Venmo, Vimeo, Vimeo,
1: Vimeo. Yeah.
0: And then I think I might rent it again just to watch it again because it was so good. And maybe that's what my family might be getting for Christmas, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was thinking that too, even though we don't live in a world where, where everyone's watching DVDs anymore, because everything is, you know, digital. I think I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to, I'm going to give people that DVD. One to support Vinny. I love Vinny. I've been on his podcast. He's been on my podcast. He's he's just a great guy. And I've had private conversations with him on, you know, the backlash that he's gotten for this movie. And it's real and it's scary. You know, like he's my had all. to do a lot of things that I I won't really mention in public, but there's a lot of issues, you know, there. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of he's tapping some nerves because financial interests are being affected. And, you know, during the movie, when he started talking about where did this come from, this idea that we have to monitor our calories and I get it. I get the calorie thing because, you know, physique athletes, bodybuilders, that's not natural to be that lean. And so you're going to do things that are unnatural. You're going to cut your calories, but for overall health, managing your calories is, is not the first thing you should do. The first thing you should do is try to figure out how to eat a proper human diet and get yourself working the way your body was intended to work, then fine, you can mess with the calories. But I just loved that part so much because he he did such a good job of communicating how just unprecedented this approach was to human history to say that health is going to come by managing a micronutrient or a macronutrient or, or something like a calorie, which was totally foreign to us, you know, 50 years ago, you would have asked someone, what's a carb, what's a protein, what's a fat? You know, they would kind of maybe have some idea of it, but they didn't know what cholesterol was. They didn't know what their cholesterol score was. And now we're, we're, we're managing all these things. We're looking at all the wrong things. I think people should pay attention to that because then they, they learn just how much freedom they can get when they have the right information. Like it doesn't have to be fighting uphill all the time and fighting hunger And all these things that you're only making your health worse and you're not, you're still not even accomplishing your goal of, you know, looking good in your bikini.
0: Yeah. And they, they didn't have an obesity epidemic until after they started all the, these different things. I mean, there's so, so much to unpack there about all of that (laughs) stuff. And I thought in the movie, he did a great job of describing it, but but for people to step back, I think, you know, what we were talking about before, about people not thinking and about not yeah. the cause and effect. But, you know, going back in time, there there is a history to, you know, our belief systems and what beliefs we have or don't have. And the idea that fat is bad for you used to be carbohydrates were bad for you or or at least made you fat. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, that was pretty known. And it wasn't, we were basically brainwashed by corporate interest to believe that that was bad for you (laughs) and and carbohydrates were not only good for you, but necessary for human health.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just know why your body needs fat, why your body needs cholesterol you know, start to learn about that. And then you'll be like, Oh my goodness, I was completely missing a whole really important piece to this puzzle. Again, it comes back to you being empowered by this information. I think it's, it's awesome. And I know Vinny is like, he has such a big platform. Like people should know who Vinny is, you know, like he knows everybody in Hollywood. He knows the underbelly of Hollywood. I mean, if you, if you don't, know that then read fitness confidential his book on being a celebrity trainer you'll get some good information on that obviously no specific names or anything like that but he is using that huge platform of his and i really hope and i i kind of think this is going to happen this is going to be if people watch this before they watch schwarzenegger and you know james cameron's monstrosity of a documentary once that comes out what is that monst? what is that Oh well, you know uh james Cameron is, is <laughs> yeah, I know who
0: James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I didn't know anything about their documentary
1: yeah, so they're you know I don't know what's up with Arnold lately uh you know he's got too much time on his hands, but uh, james Cameron you know I, I I'm pretty sure he's a a real uh just ardent vegan and oh.
0: uh, it's a
1: plant it's a plant based documentary where they're they're bringing in think about how many Poor kids, I really hope children don't, and young teenagers don't watch this and see their favorite football player or someone who just so happens to be following a plant-based diet and doing well because they have the best supplementation and great genetics takes that to heart, especially developing children, because you will you know alter your development, you will uh, cause harm, and basically they're making this documentary on why. Athletes should be plant based. And oh,
0: I think Benny. Oh, no. Yeah. I yeah. had no idea. That's horrible. Well, one of the reasons I switched to keto, low carb, are, was because I had read about um, Scott Jerk and his um, plant based diet. Even though I grew up on a ranch, you know, I was not, I had never thought that eating meat was bad for the environment. So that was never an idea in my head. But Scott Jerk, was eating a plant-based vegan diet and he was a very fast runner. And I thought like, well, I will give that a try. And that's when my health took a huge tank. And I think it probably, I'm still recovering from it. I don't know that I'll ever recover from how sick I really was following that. So I am am very, very, very anti-vegan diet for health. If somebody follows it for a short time and they have good results, you know, good for you, but don't expect that diet to last to make you, I mean, healthy.
1: But yeah.
0: if, that's horrible.
1: Yeah, I'm in advance. I'm angry in advance. Like I remember I, I started a an email thread with Ryan Lowry and a few other people. And I was like, we got to do something. <laughs> this is not good, you know? I think on its face, people will, will see how preposterous it is, you know, Arnold never won an Olympia as a vegan. None of these people, you know, a lot of them are, are are maybe doing a vegan diet now. And I I could say the same thing about keto. I I know we've interviewed NFL players who've retired or fighters who do keto in the off season. They may not be right for them in season, but then at the same time, you know, don't deny, especially if you're talking about for performance, don't deny what got you to the big dance, you know, like that, that's what got you there. Not, not this, you know, new thing that you're doing, and you're not even competing anymore.
0: Right, right, I agree. But there are some, like Peter. Well, both of us know Peter Defty. He's worked with some, you know, super elite athletes, and they have done very, very well with keto during part of the season, and he calls it strategic carbs during other parts of the yep. season. And that's really what I coach. So even though my company's keto endurance, but my emphasis is your your body is primarily using fat. Your body uses fat as its primary source of fuel. That doesn't mean it doesn't still use other fuel sources. But you know, side I agree with you. Like if it's working, you know, I'm just saying I agree. But I'm, I'm <laughs> actually, I have another screen and I'm looking at this Arnold. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so upsetting to me. Yeah. This is horrible. (laughs) So I'm a huge fan of the Savory Institute. One of my clients works for the Savory Institute and I have gone to their conference. And are you familiar with Alan Savory? He did the Ted talk about, um, and how ruminant agriculture, he's basically the guy who figured out, how to move animals mimicking nature to improve
1: topsoil well i haven't i haven't read his stuff but you know my first entree into that was lear keith's book the vegetarian myth and right. i i really started to learn about just how unnatural like a vegan diet is for the environment like we are going to the supermarket and purchasing produce that's been flown over from a different country whose topsoil we now destroyed and we already destroyed our own topsoil because we were trying to convert arable land into farmland and we've changed our our whole landscape. Insects and certain animals are now extinct because of it. We've created issues where the wolf, you know, certain wolf populations in the country have have died down a ton and now we have deer problems and now we have all these unintended consequences because we are we want to, you know, have food in season all the time. Instead of working with the environment and learning, okay, how do things work? How does this ecosystem actually work? And how can we use it to create a practice that's regenerative, even not regenerative, even if you were just doing something that was not, you know, causing all of this damage that would take years, if ever, to undo, you know, because sometimes once the topsoil is done, you know, it's really hard to get that dead thing. Yeah, because it's a dead... It, that's an organism that we completely destroyed and sterilized and it's hard to build that back up and it's that not is... that
0: hard danny i'm gonna send you some oh, good.
1: Leaves. oh good, um, good 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 so, I... so
0: what regenerative agriculture is is a process where you mimic nature and you use the ruminants in a way combined with the idea of the current animals the indigenous animals of that area and in their context so some of the places where they have done regenerative agriculture, they can measure the amount of topsoil that they increase. And they're now able to certify different areas that they've increased the topsoil and they've sequestered more carbon from the atmosphere.
1: Than I love seeing that. I love the, seeing that. It's so good.
0: Yeah. So it's the ruminant agriculture. It's called regenerative. The, the key term is regenerative agriculture. So, regenerative agriculture is not only does it help bring in areas. So, there's a ranch in, I think it's Oregon, that they started, there was bare topsoil, the topsoil was gone, and they started this regenerative agriculture process, and I think it was eight years later, they had bald eagles come back to the area. Wow. They, uh, and it... And the whole emphasis is having more beating hearts. The more life on that piece of land, the more land is alive. So it's yeah. the regenerative agriculture. The whole goal of it is to you know, use this process of ruminants, which are sheep, goats, cattle, to really bring the life back to the land. And I'll, I'll, I'll send you some videos and I'll, I'll put them in the show notes. So yes, people, that it makes a difference and you can actually, you know, measure the topsoil. So this, I don't know if you've seen Alan Savory's TED Talk, but he talks about the problem is desertification. It's not, you know, global warming. Some of it is from exhaust from our cars, but it's also because there's no topsoil and there's the lack of perennial grasses that have a fast growing cycle that pull carbon out of the atmosphere into the soil. So too much carbon is in the atmosphere is one of the leading causes of global warming. So if you reverse that, you pull carbon from the atmosphere into the soil, then you're basically reversing that process. And are you familiar with Joel Soliton?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I, I interestingly came across his work years and years ago, not even related to nutrition. I was it was a political thing because he, you know, I'm a big libertarian, I'm more anarchist than anything. Uh, and it, something that I was watching, he was talking about that and, and I was blown away by it. So it's Polyface Farms, I think is his. Um, right,
0: Polyface Farms. And he is, Joel Soliton is a student of Alan Savory. And, oh, okay. uh, and he's given talks on if you have enough animals on the land enough ruminants i'm reversing this process of global warming that you can reverse global warming in 10 years reverse it completely completely i believe so So the thing is like this whole vegan movement is interfering with reversing global warming you have to have more ruminants on the soil because that's the process you know it's composting so the animals it's the predator Combination of predator-prey relationship. So you have the ruminants and then the prey. So if you let's let's think of a grassland in the savannas of Africa, where you have the lions and the tigers and the javelina and stuff, they keep the animals bunched up pretty close. And the animals are eating the perennial grasses and then they're pooping and peeing, which is basically fertilizer. But because <laughs> And and composting because their hooves are composting the ground.
1: That's such a beautiful thing. They're working with the environment.
0: Right. And so the predators pouncing on them forces them to move off of that area, you know, in a relatively quick time. So they're very close together, very bunched up, but then they have to move off of it, which allows the perennial grasses to use nutrients from the the urine and the um, feces And able to grow again, that process of growth pulls the carbon out of the atmosphere. It's pretty, like it's pretty simple, but it's uh, pretty. You know, if you just nature knows best. Just like the body is always trying to keep us alive, nature is always trying to stay alive. And if you let nature do its thing, it will balance out. So to help nature along, you just mimic what it's already doing, and it will make
1: topsoil. Get out of the way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, just get out of the way. So perennial grasses, people, I always think it's like, oh, we're killing the rainforest. That's the lungs of the planet. Rainforests are not the lungs of the planet. Actually, it's plankton in the oceans that produce about 50% oxygen. So when we pollute the oceans, we're killing off half the oxygen. And then perennial grasses make a huge amount of oxygen because of their fast growing cycle forests the, forest, the rainforests do produce a lot of oxygen they, they provide a lot of life for for animals and you know they have a lot of biodiversity but it's like that's the not the only place where oxygen is made almost half of it is made in the oceans
1: yeah so I, that's I always, that's a great point
0: yeah so I'm sorry Danny for taking up so much of your time but I So appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I hope this information is helpful for our listeners. And can you just tell um, folks where they can find you and if you have any specific programs coming up?
1: Sure thing. Like I said, always, uh, you know, most active on Instagram. So dannyvega.ms is my Instagram handle. Our fatfuel.family is our website. That's where our podcast is. And of course, the most important thing that I'm really trying to, push right now because it's so unprecedented that it, we haven't really seen anything like it up until we created it is our keto muscle intelligence program that I did with Ben Pokolski and anybody who's interested all they got to do click the link in my in my profile on Instagram and they'll get a free document on five big reasons why they may not be adding muscle on a ketogenic diet and of course through that link they can if they want to they can buy the keto muscle intelligence program as well
0: Oh, very cool. Very cool. Thank you so much, Danny.